Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 73 for September the 18th, 2011. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest this week is Paul Ducklin once again. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Chester. Good to have you back. Um, there's a few interesting stories this week to talk about in the security realm, as usual. Well, Chester, before you do that, if you listen to the background news noise, you can hear that uh, I'm not in my usual quiet place. I'm actually stuck in a denial-of-service attack at Sydney Domestic Airport. So how does a denial-of-service attack occur at the airport? Well, what happened is it appeared that earlier this morning a couple of chaps went through security, as you do, but the security guards weren't paying attention. But when they realised, hey, two people have breached security, of course the airport went into lockdown, everyone got kicked out, and now the terminal is basically a sort of human parking lot, and they're just trying to clear flights one by one. It's quite interesting that a, a small security lapse actually brought the entire airport to a standstill, which just goes to show if you have ill-designed security procedures, ones which can actually uh, be a complete bottleneck, that you can, uh, you can end up in a worse situation than you expected. So are, are you suggesting that uh, perhaps our airport security uh, has some flaws? I mean, there is a school of thought in security that says put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket rather than having, you know, that, that's the whole argument behind, behind single sign-on, for example. But if you're going to do that, you have to watch that basket. There can be no glitches. Well, I guess uh, getting into the regular topics for news this week, I mean, there was a patch Tuesday, um, obviously on Tuesday, and, you know, Microsoft released patches for, uh, I believe there was five patches, and, and I know you wrote a story for Naked Security on this. Uh, is there anything to be worried about? It looked like it was a reasonably moderate, uh, calm patch Tuesday. It was a double-barreled patch Tuesday because uh, Adobe and Microsoft coincide. Microsoft, of course, do every month. Adobe do every three months on second Tuesday of the month. The Microsoft patches were five important rather than critical, which is interesting because at least some of them uh, were considered potential remote code execution. But Microsoft gave them important in terms of what you were patching against, and Sophos Labs gave them only a medium in terms of likelihood of them being exploited because it looks as though they were found in advance and headed off at the pass. Yeah. So you should apply those patches. Don't let your change control committee delay too long, but it doesn't sound like you have to jump too high. Uh, the Adobe patches appear to be another story. There are quite a number of bugs fixed, 12 or so vulnerabilities patched in their update, and many of those do seem to be critical. And as Sophos Labs put it, potential remote code execution exploits in things like Flash and Adobe Reader have been quite fertile hunting ground for the malware authors in the past. So best get onto that as quickly as possible if you haven't already. So if you have to prioritize, you prioritize Adobe above Microsoft, but um, the bottom line is just get them done. Yes, this idea of, oh, well, let's wait a month and see what happens, and then let's wait another month and see what happens. I think we all need collectively to be a little bit faster. I'm not suggesting you've rolled out a patch within five seconds, but the idea of this real wait and see and then revisit and see what happens to the early adopters I think it's, it's fair to say these days that the methodology of patching has changed to the point that we can be a little more trusting or a little more keen to adopt patches on the grounds that they tend to be incremental improvements rather than patches which cause a disaster so bad it has to be patched critically. Yeah, I actually read an article this week, uh, someone talking about how the amount of zero day that you're exposed to by having change control of, say, a, a two-week window after Patch Tuesday is so much of a greater business disruption and cost to your organization than it is to simply blindly apply them. And then on the rare occasion every 18 months that a few machines happen to have a small issue after a Microsoft patch, 
um, you know, the business disruption and the cost of doing business is, is far greater for waiting than it is to simply deploy them. So, Well, Chester, there is a school of thought, of course, that says that if if you routinely have you know, a three-week delay while you ponder and go into all kinds of committees and gears within gears to decide about a patch, then by the time you do it, there could, necess- there could, be a, there could still be a disaster for your business, in which case you're going to need a fast way to recover from that when the patch for the patch comes out anyway. So if you don't already have a mechanism which has you know, a sort of three-hour patch window, three days, three weeks, three months, because if you don't have a mechanism that allows you to deal with each of those, then you could be in trouble anyway. So I agree with you that if you're always going to, if you're always going to have the sort of wheels within wheels three-week window, then on occasion you're probably going to have a business disruption just when you most need to get around it. Yeah, absolutely. We were discussing earlier, uh, there was a, a trader at the uh, the bank UBS that apparently absconded or mistakenly traded or lost money through illegitimate trades, I guess, of somewhere along the lines of $3 billion U.S. dollars. If our financial institutions aren't able to protect themselves from that kind of fraud, what does that say about our privacy and security in general? Yes, there have been a few articles pointing out that given that, you know, right back from the uh, Leeson days in Singapore that the banks are supposed to have checks and technological checks and balances that prevent an insider from overriding and you know, manipulating the system so trades of this sort don't go unnoticed. So given that there are checks in place that prevent somebody over... basically prevent a Bradley Manning 30 years of US cables WikiLeaks moment, they're supposed to have that in place for their trading, and that's their own money. One wonders how seriously uh, organisations are taking the internal protections against the deliberate or inadvertent leakage of personally identifiable information of customers, which doesn't directly cost them, indirectly cost them money. Uh, but, you know, you think if £2.3 billion pounds can go missing, what's a few hundred names, phone numbers, addresses and other information? So it does raise the question of just, are we doing security right? And funny me saying that sitting here at the airport waiting for the backlog to clear because of two guys walking through security because there was no one there to check them. Security seems to not uh, vanish off the horizon ever. I mean, uh, uh, our colleague in uh, Croatia, uh, uh, Vanya uh, from Sophos Labs, blogged this week about apparently the spy eye guy, uh, authors, or I shouldn't say guy, I don't know if it's a guy, nor do I know if it's a group. The author of Spy Eye, a well-known uh, information-stealing Trojan, uh, seems to be following in the footsteps of Zeus. There's a, a, a version now for Android that appears to be doing similar activity for defeating two-factor authentication for banking uh, information. So many banks, I know here in North America, we have banks that allow you to get a SMS token number sent to you every time you try to log into your bank account, and that's meant to be kind of a poor man's two-factor authentication. So that in addition to your password, you then have to own, you know, possess the device, the idea of two-factor. Are phones really effective mechanisms for two-factor authentication? And should we expect to see more and more malware targeting security mechanisms that we're using on these smartphones and tablets and all these kind of devices? The real deal is that you need two ways of verifying yourself which can't be simultaneously cheated. And the real problem with mobile phones is increasingly people are using mobile phones to do their banking. So they're using them as the browser and as the authentication device to get the SMS. So they haven't really got those two channels or two bands of communication. Really, it's back to one, it's one factor, right? I mean, in, in the end. 
But the trick in the SpyEye case, as I understand it for Android, is that they actually, you, you, you have malware on, on your PC, which injects itself into the HTML stream, which says, hey, now you need to download the application that will help you do the authentication on your phone. And people are getting used to the idea that phones require, or that using a special application is actually of benefit to you, instead of using the stuff that's already built into the phone, like SMS or your browser. You know, people getting special applications to read newspapers, for example, instead of using a browser. So here's a special application, so your PC tells you, although your PC is infected, go and download this application on your phone. So you're actually, your second factor of authentication, you're actually being tricked into installing because your first factor is already owned. Right, so social engineering all over again. It sort of shows that the bad guys are starting to do some experiments into how they can make money out of malware for mobile phones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm got a brief news note, not that I uh, think we're going to dive into it, but there was a big story this week that Twit.tv, which is the uh, kind of online media network of Leo Laporte, and uh, in the security community, probably best known for uh, having Steve Gibson in Security Now, which is one of the largest security podcasts out there. Uh, the reality is, uh, you know, the, 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 this network was compromised with malware uh, targeting Java and PDFs this week. And, I, you know, to me, it wasn't anything specifically commenting on Twit or Steve or Leo or anyone else. It was much more about the idea that to this day, when I talk to people, and you and I had an experience with a journalist uh, a couple years ago, that this idea that I'm a safe surfer, right? That I, that I don't need to worry about anti-malware or web filtering or this, that, and the other thing on my device because I don't go to those kind of websites. And I think, you know, most of us could agree that it, we wouldn't think twice necessarily about going to a tech blogger's website or or a podcaster's website, especially one that uh, largely focuses on security. And the last story I wanted to bring up uh, was around the Windows 8, including some integrated anti-malware. I, I, I personally have had very little experience with it, but just before we began the podcast, I did load up Windows 8 on bare metal here on my, uh, my machine that is my primary work, uh, home computer. And one, I have to give Microsoft credit. I was super impressed. I installed Windows 8 from a USB stick, and the entire system to the desktop uh, installed in 13 minutes. Uh, granted, I got a nice machine with a lot of RAM, but it was it was quite impressive. Uh, a, a weird thing was that I loaded iCar uh, onto the machine. Well, when I went to download iCar, and of course, Internet Explorer's integrated smart screen filter that Microsoft's been bragging about quite uh, highly in the last year or so, uh, stopped me from downloading iCar, saying it was dangerous content and that I was not allowed to save or run that file. But I copied and pasted the 68-byte text down to my notepad and decided to save it as icar.com in my documents folder, which it let me do. And then it promptly, within a few seconds, just vanished from my documents folder. And I went into the event viewer. I couldn't find any evidence or warning. I never got a pop-up saying, you know, virus had been detected. Uh, pretty much, you know, no evidence of anything at all other than, boom, malware vanished. So... I don't know if you've had any thoughts on Windows 8, Paul. I mean, obviously, it's so new and it's in test period. It's not something that we can really cast judgment on. But is it a benefit to the community that we at least have some sort of anti uh, rudimentary anti-malware protection integrated into our operating system? Well, Apple certainly seemed to think so. They have a very rudimentary system built into OS X now. And you can argue that some protection is better than none. I'm not sure how strong that argument is because I think you can get a false sense of security. Microsoft have certainly spent a lot of uh, time and money in recent years trying to build an anti-malware research team, which they seem to have done very well. I suppose the, the real issue is 
does it amount to anti-competitive behavior, as people have argued in the past with Microsoft building a browser that you couldn't choose not to install into their operating system. And maybe it would be nice if the operating system vendor, who's also a big software vendor, has to give some space for others. So I, you know, that's for, the, that's for the courts, particularly in Europe, which seem to take this seriously to decide. Uh, having a built-in antivirus, is it a good idea? Provided it works well, I don't see why not. I'm really tired of hearing people saying that they have, they, you know, they bought a computer 15 months ago and they got 990 or 720 or however many degrees it is these days for free for three months and it's been bugging them for the last year saying they're now out of date, what do they want to do about it? And they're just still thinking, oh well, I'll, I'll just go with, I'm only a year out of date, what could possibly go wrong? Which probably means if they're taking that attitude, they're not bothering with um, patches and security updates to all their other software. Not Windows, not Flash, not Reader, not anything else they use. So anything which, which focuses people's minds on doing security a little better and makes it easier for them to do it automatically uh, has got to be considered a good idea. I suppose it's easier for me, easy for me to say that since we don't have a consumer product. Maybe if we did, I might feel a little differently. But if it, if it improves the general resilience of the world population to malware, that would be a good idea. Do you want to be part of the big security monoculture though? I don't know. Uh, people have to decide that for themselves. Yeah, that, that's the big question, I think, is that it kind of may accelerate the cat and mouse game that gets played in that, um, you know, as a malware author, it would be silly to not test against something that's built into the operating system. And we saw that with Apple where, you know, Apple was consistent re releasing their identities, if you want to call them that, for their uh, integrated malware protection in OS X around 2 p.m. Pacific time every single day. And around 3 or 4 p.m. Pacific time, we saw the new version of the Mac Scareware rogue, av you know, rogue antivirus kind of stuff showing up and the, you know the bad guys knew how to game the system and maybe it you know limited their window to a day with apple and microsoft's likely to be much more uh, responsive than apple has been but it, it would be an interesting thing to see how it plays out and you know at this point the fact that well i'm mean, granted icar is not a, a fully uh, valid test i guess it would be proper for me to throw some real malware at it it would be proper for you to throw iCar at it. That's the whole idea of the iCar test file. It's to stop people needing to muck around with real malware at home and possibly find that they failed the test and that now they're infected. So the idea of using iCar is it's like not setting fire to your office to see whether your smoke alarms work. That's why it disappeared or you didn't get a warning or a notification. I suggest you call tech support. Well, I think that's against the license agreement that I agreed to to install the developer preview. It was great having you again, Paul, and I appreciate you taking time from the airport and your busy travels and everything to join us, and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. And I hope that I'm on time on target because I am actually uh, need to arrive for a conference event this evening, but it looks as though it's thinning out a bit, so I think I shall be perfectly placed to fly on time. Well, Godspeed to you, and that wraps up uh, Software Security Chat Chat, Episode 73. Thank you for joining us once again. As always, you can get our podcasts at podcasts.sophos.com, on iTunes, via RSS, and on Stitcher. And until next time, stay secure.